In this episode of the Business of E-Commerce, I talk with Stephen Summers about expanding Amazon private label into international markets. This is the Business of E-Commerce, episode 87. Today's episode is sponsored by Drip. Drip is the world's first e-commerce CRM and a tool that I personally use for email marketing and automation. Now, if you're running an e-commerce store, you need to give Drip a try, and here's why. Drip offers one-click integrations for both Shopify and Magento. There's robust segmentation, personalization, and revenue dashboards to give you an overview of how your automation emails are performing. One of my favorite features of Drip is the Visual Workflow Builder. It gives you a super easy way to build out your automation world visually and see the entire process. It lets you get started quickly, but also build very complex automation roles. It's powerful, but also easy to learn, unlike a lot of email tools that offer the same type of automation. To get a demo of Drip today, you can go head over to drip.com BOE. That's drip.com BOE. Now, onto the show. Welcome to the Business of E-Commerce, the show that helps e-commerce retailers start, launch, and grow their e-commerce business. I'm your host, Charles Pulesky, and I'm here today with Stephen Summers. Stephen is the co-founder of Marketplace Superheroes, an education platform that teaches members how to create five to seven figure income streams selling products on Amazon. Him and his business partner are both seven figure Amazon sellers and serial entrepreneurs. But on top of that, Marketplace Superheroes has, he's also helped build a freight company and an accounting service for Amazon sellers. I have Stephen on the show today to chat about how you can expand your Amazon private label business into international markets. So, hey, Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Charles. It's great to be here. Always look forward to talking about Amazon and making sales online and going global and uh, getting rid of all the fears, maybe as well associated with going global on Amazon. It'll be great. Yeah, definitely an interesting topic because I feel like most people start with private label. Um, just, yeah. you know, let's say for the sake of viewership, I'm a lot here, uh, US-based audience. Um, but so a lot of people... And wherever you are, right, they kind of everyone starts with their own domestic audience um, just because that's what you know. And that's kind of you import products locally. Um, but with Amazon, they do make it pretty, I don't know if easy is the right word, but they make it possible to sell in other marketplaces, right, with FBA and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole core behind our business philosophy. It has been for the last nine years, you know, whereby we are obviously in Ireland, so we are not uh, in the U.S., but of course, you know, we do sell in the U.S. and our sellers are mostly U.S.-based, actually. But that said, you know, whenever we were selling um, uh, before we taught with Marketplace Superheroes, we were in a situation where it was like we sold in the U.K., uh, we did well with that. But then we thought, well, how can we take these same products and just sell them in more places to more people. It's a very simple concept, but it's a great one for, for multiplying your, your business on Amazon. And so at the time, you know, whenever we started this, we had to, for the US, we had to go and find a local supplier in the US who could be our warehouse and then ship out, because we shipped out uh, actually as uh, our own fulfillment at the time. We didn't use FBA at the time. And then when we had the European side of things, the mistake we made was we shipped everything to each individual country on Amazon. But, you know, over the last number of years, all that's changed. It's a lot easier now, as you say, or simpler now. Certainly in Europe, you know, there's something called the EFN, the European Fulfillment Network. And it's great for Amazon sellers, right, because you can send all your stock to one country in Europe. You can list your products on Amazon for sale in Europe. And then every time somebody buys from you, uh, Amazon will ship that out to that end customer on your behalf. And you don't have to learn all the different languages, et cetera, because, as you know, Amazon take care of customer support. 
So yeah, when it comes to being local, then we kind of always had this sort of, I suppose, advantage in that we've never really been local to any one place or the places we've been local to are actually kind of small. So we've always looked outward as to where are the other markets we can sell in. So a lot of the U.S. merchants who we would work with and, and would have taught how to do a lot of this stuff, they would have been the same. You know, the U.S. is a huge country. Canada is a, is a pretty big country, but U.S. being the far bigger one. And so sometimes it's like, well, why would I even bother sell in other countries? The U.S. is plenty big for a lot of businesses. But I suppose with, with our guys, they're all selling on Amazon specifically. So it just made sense to say just the same. The processes are the same the world over. The only changes then come down to your company structure and stuff like that, which we can certainly chat about. But ultimately, like compared to when we started, this is so simple because we had to, like I say, find warehouses and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you? So when you said you started selling the US, you were not using FBA. Is that because you didn't choose to or that's because FBA wasn't around then? Yeah, it was around, but it wasn't like it is today. You know, it wasn't as as vital to a seller's success. And also, we were selling on eBay a lot at the time. So we kind of thought, well, we'll just keep it all in the one place. Uh, of course, you know, when FBA really took off in a much bigger way, and whenever it became almost like if you don't use FBA, kind of forget being successful in, in some ways, not that that's the case for every product, but you know, it's a very big competitive advantage when you do utilize that compared to not using it. So we just, yeah, we went full in with FBA at that time. I mean, actually stopped selling on other platforms uh, for a while because you just compared to the ease of Amazon, it was, it was big. And at the time it was a real lifestyle business for us. So we really wanted to keep it really simple and lean. And now, you know, we look at it differently as we've expanded and, and whatever, and as our sellers that we teach expand, but, but ultimately, yeah, we, we primarily focus on Amazon uh, globally. And as I say, it was through choice. But nowadays, we kind of we don't we don't choose that anymore. We go straight for FBA. Got it. And when you also mentioned the um, European Fulfillment Network, is that a FBA yeah. thing or how? Does yeah, that yeah, okay. it absolutely is. Yeah. So Amazon basically saw, look, when it comes to Europe, you know, it's much smaller uh, geographically. And so there's a lot of benefits to Europe, like, for example, in the U.S., Typically, when you're shipping in items, they're shipped to multiple different fulfillment centers around the U.S. Uh, with inventory placement and stuff like that. Whereas when it comes to European markets, the big difference is that typically it doesn't always happen this way. But you usually send all your standard size inventory to one warehouse and oversized inventory to another warehouse. So it really makes it a lot easier to expand. Uh, in Europe because then it all goes to one place. So for us, it's the U.K. We store our products in the U.K., then every time we make a sale in Germany with our translated German listing, Amazon, pick and pack that, ship it to Germany on our behalf, and we just pay a small EFN fee for the, the for being able to ship that from the UK. Over time, then, what you want to look at, which is, is called MCI, which is multi-country inventory, which basically means that you want to send some stock to Germany, you want to send some stock to France, but, you know, whenever you start sending products to another country, it does imply some some tax, not issues, but just some tax things you got to be aware of. Like in the U.S., you know, whenever you've got products in different states, if you have your own inventory, you create a tax nexus for yourself. So you have to obviously report sales in those in those uh, states uh, and all the rest. So Europe, it's kind of the same thing. And that's why we typically just start with sending everything to one country. And then as you hit these different selling thresholds, you can start moving your stuff down the line. Yeah, because at a certain amount of stock, it doesn't make sense to have it in multiple 
um, warehouses. But after you kind of go over whatever that number is, depending on, you know, yeah, the country, country size of the product, there's yeah. certain things kind of the numbers stop making sense to spread it out. Right. Um, yeah, because it's it's validated. You know, yeah. it's it's you know the the numbers that are coming through. You're starting to learn the data, and it's just like yeah, like this makes sense now. You know, we've seen that a lot of times with our members. You know, maybe in France their product takes off, and you know because they're paying that EFN fee, they're still making a profit, but it's it's chopping into the profit quite a bit. So it makes sense at that point to to get set up in France, to get set up for VAT in France, the sales tax in France, and to start sending some products over there. And yeah, that, that's something that honestly, uh, when you're starting out, you don't have to really worry about because you're just trying to validate that your products are going to be, you're just trying to validate where the demand is for your products, basically, in your best sales regions. Yeah, I feel like you're probably going to find pretty quickly, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that but the demand is going to be vastly different, possibly. But also the competition is going to be vastly different. So you might reach a place where you just can't sell because maybe someone kind of just has that unlock and you just can't get in there. Or, you know, the opposite, you might just kind of drop the listing day one and get lots of sales and realize, wow, I'm yeah. the only one here. Um, yeah. Have you kind of found that yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, like a lot of people would say, well, where's the best place to sell in Europe? And I always say, as you just said there, it's, it's kind of product dependent. You know, sometimes uh, the supply of a product in one country, in Spain, for example, there's the supply is tiny, but yet there's search volume for those products. And those people that wanted those products maybe had to go to the UK, Amazon, to actually get them. So it makes sense then that they would buy, a they'll buy them from you when they're in Spain. So sometimes it's like you can't predict it. You just don't know ahead of time even though the germany and, and the uk are the two biggest most established countries in europe on amazon france being third you still don't know i've seen many people who uh, spain their product has taken off hasn't done a whole lot in the uk i've seen people that goes crazy in the uk doesn't do too much in spain does a little bit in germany does loads in france so that's why you know efn efn is nice because you just have one place send your inventory to one spot one place where you test everything, and then you can start to see, okay, where do I want to ship my products as they begin to grow? So that makes complete sense. What are some of the regions? So let's say you to kind of pick some larger yeah. just like regions, right, of saying let's ship some products to the European region, some products to X. Where would you even yeah. – like where would you begin with this process? Yeah, so it's a good question. I mean, for us, we a lot of people are going to say a lot of different things when it comes to Amazon, right? A lot of people, for a while, they got obsessed with Japan. Uh, people got obsessed, are now obsessed with Australia, as, as at the time of the recording. Uh, and the reality is that the two biggest markets on Amazon are the UK, US being number one. And then the European zone being number two, because because we have the EFN, so we're able to, to classify Europe as one place. So we always focus on, if you send an inventory over, I would send 50 to 60% of inventory to the US, the remainder to Europe. And, and that's what I would do to, to test, because they're similar size markets, so it kind of makes sense. Okay, so, now, so, depending, 50 to, so you'd split it base, almost in half, basically, half to Europe, half almost to the US. Yeah, almost in half now because of, you know, the, the European markets have developed a lot more than years ago. We would have done maybe 70, 30 a few years ago in favor of the U.S., whereas that's kind of changing now. The European markets are getting bigger because there's five countries as a whole. But the thing you got to remember about the European markets as well, which is really cool, is that let's say you're selling your product in Germany. Well, people in Austria, they'll see your German listing because they typically shop on Amazon.de. Uh, so you're not really just selling to five countries, you're selling to the surrounding countries as well. 
when it comes to North America then honestly like like Canada Amazon Canada it could be so tricky to send inventory to Canada uh, in our experience that's just our experience and our, and our members too that we typically just don't really do a whole lot in Canada and Mexico you know it's developing but at the end of the day it can be tricky to get a corporate entity set up down there and stuff like that so it's always the way with amazon you know these newer markets typically you it takes time before they're ready for a lot of people to go into them i mean india as well a lot of people talk about but india japan mexico a lot of them have just difficulties with getting corporate entities set up and stuff like that whereas when you go to europe it's really simple we typically uh, our members typically set up a UK limited company. The reason for that is because if you're a non-EU entity selling in Europe uh, and you come into Europe and say a US LLC or something like that, you have to register and pay VAT straight away. Now, even if you set up a UK limited company as a non-European person, you probably still will, will need to uh, register for VAT straight away as well for your UK company. However, this is where the big difference is. Whenever you then, let's say you make a sale with your UK limited company as a US resident to somebody in the UK, no problem, you register for VAT. You make a sale to somebody in Germany, no problem, you pay the UK VAT up until later on. If, however, you were a US resident, you had a US LLC, you sold your product to a person in the UK, you'd pay the VAT, normal, same as the other example. However, now, whenever you sold to that German person, you actually have to register for German VAT straight away. If somebody from Austria bought me, it's Austrian VAT, France, French VAT. So it becomes this really big um, kind of painful exercise if you go in with the wrong entity. So that's that's what we, we, we can't tell anybody which entity to use because it's a, it's a choice because you can sell with the US LLC. Uh, however, we don't recommend it for those reasons. And, and that's a, like if, if people are like considering if they're on Amazon, they're looking to expand that one tip alone today has saved you thousands and thousands of dollars. I can tell you, I've seen it, seen a lot of people not know that going in, you know? Yeah. And let's caveat this with, I don't know about you, but I'm not an actual accountant. So anything we say probably shouldn't ask, you know, you should probably ask a real accountant, but uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> it's not financial advice, not financial yes. advice, not actually accounting advice, but it does sound like, so what you're saying is as a U.S. resident, you should set up a, um, would be the equivalent of like a corporation in the Yeah, it's just a UK limited company. UK uh, limited. We, we, we do this for our members now. We actually put that service together a while back and we do their accounting as well because, you know, like, you know, uh, Sparkship and, you know, what, what our whole role is, is to be long-term working with our clients as partners. And so even though we do teach people how to sell on Amazon, we don't just stop there. You know, we we identified people got our shipping products in China. We'll set up a freight company to make that easier for them. They're going to need accountants in the UK and whatever. We'll set that up for them. And so, yeah, we take care of a lot of that with our, with our members. But if you never worked with us, which is cool if you don't, uh, that's what you would do. I would speak to a UK limited, uh, I would UK accountant and also know something your U.S. accountant is probably not going to know very much about the U.K. Therefore, they're probably going to give you contradicting advice. That's why I always say speak to the accountant in the country that you're looking to operate in. Don't speak to a non-resident uh, accountant because the advice you're going to get, they're not going to know necessarily the answer because this global e-commerce world, you know, it's it's kind of only in the last few years you can do this. Yeah, and it sounds like there would be more of like a EU type of accountant that 
uh, kind of in the UK, right? Where can, you know, at least, hey, if you're going to sell in Germany, maybe there's some weird quirk over there and France are okay and, you know, wherever. And they can yeah. kind of give you some um, specific regional yeah, advice. Yeah, it's and it's really honestly it's really simple i think you know it's easy to to become afraid of tax and things like that but at the end of the day look it's just a part of business uh, governments aren't actually out there to shut down businesses they're they're there to enable businesses to to sell and okay you just have to play by their rules and if you're set up at the right entity in europe which again a uk limited company is a good example of an entity that you could be looking at well then you know you you pay your tax in the UK and then you know down the line you just set up for VAT only in Germany and it's nice and simple like I, a lot of those accountants will just help will just set that up for you uh, you know again I, I years ago when I was figuring all this stuff out I was ringing the German consulate in Ireland and I was trying to ask them what I should do and of course they would tell you well you should set up a, a German company because. In their to their mind, that's a good thing, you know. That gets another company set up in Germany, probably gets up their their numbers in that respect. So that's what they would recommend. That's not necessarily what is the right thing for you as a as somebody who wants to just build a business online and make, and make sales, you know. Yep. Now you also said you'd split the inventory right between UK and US. What about the other markets? You know, Japan, um, Australia. Like, would you just kind of ignore those at the beginning, or like when would you yeah. start looking towards those? Yeah, well, we're actually setting up a warehouse at the moment in Australia uh, with our freight company. So we'll make that easier for our members because Australia is a good market. Again, Australia is not that big a population, really. It's just a big country. I mean, I think I, I don't know the exact – I'd have to look up the exact population because I feel kind of bad now not knowing it. But I think it's about 12 million people. Let me just see here. Australia population. <laughs> I don't, I don't, yeah, sorry, 24 million. So double what I thought. So it's 24 million people. It's not, it's not a tiny population. But when you consider the entire size of Europe, it's pretty small small consider the entire size of the u.s it's pretty small but it's a good market so so i would ignore when i from day one unless it was easy for me to send inventory there which it will be for people down the line uh, they can add in australia when they use our service uh, but other than that I, I would say that india japan they're very tricky to set up corporate entities in those countries i've, I've looked we've looked into it at length we have got some people who sell in those markets it's just a lot trickier. It's just not set up yet for non-residents to easily come in and get set up. It will be in a few years. And at that point in time, you know, we'll definitely recommend jumping in there and selling in those markets. But to, to begin with, I wouldn't. And again, another good example is, you know, Amazon were in China for a number of years selling there. But recently they shut down their Chinese operations because they just found, you know, when they're competing with Alibaba, there was was they couldn't. And so you got to be aware of that, too. Like, you know. That that was not a long established market, so I think that's another consideration as well. But really and truly, it just comes down to if it's easy enough to set up a corporate entity, if there's facilities there for you to send in your stock, then it's cool. But if not, I would wait until later on if you're more advanced. Okay, so I mean, you because you could sell as a U.S. company, you can sell into Japan, but just the tax behind you guys is whole other. No, no. Not as a U.S. company, no. You need to set up a local Japanese uh, entity, actually, as that's how you did have to do it, actually. It's been a little while since I looked at that, uh, to be completely honest, but I believe it hasn't changed. You did have to you, – you, what, you, what used to happen was Amazon would set you up with a contact in Japan. They'd help you get a company. It was a whole big thing, and it was just very complex, and I believe it's still the same. Probably a little better now, but still not easy enough or simple enough for, for it to be really worth a while, but – Again, for us being a business who we're teaching the multi-country thing, you know, it, it's obviously something we're going to look more, more and more into. But as it stands, those countries are just tricky. Got it. Okay. So how yeah. about 
So even let's say you're talking um, the EU, you um, yep. what is it half? Is it half a dozen countries? About how many are in the? Oh, no, there's a lot more. Um, well, so the, right when you now, say Amazon countries, Amazon sites. Um, oh yeah, sorry, yeah, but it's Amazon sites. Yeah, so you're talking about UK, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and Poland, and the Netherlands have just started to come on late. Yep. But really, it's those five are the big ones right now. I just mentioned, and there's new ones coming. Uh, being those two I just talked about, uh, they're not as well established just yet. But yeah, so when you begin selling in Europe, it's going to be those five you're going to be looking at. And are, so are you. Um rewriting the product pages in yeah. German and France um, and how are you doing that? Like, you know, as a US, you know, cause you could run through like Google translate, but it's not going to come out right. Um, what do you kind of do to make it look like it's actually, no, don't do that. yeah, don't, <laughs> yeah, people yeah. know, you, people know when you do that, <laughs> they knew you spent about three minutes doing yeah. it. Um, they can tell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the answer really is we used to use a, a service called translated.net They're a good service, but you know, the only issue we had was they didn't, they're not really e-commerce related uh, translators. Now, there are a lot of companies who will do e-commerce translations for you. Uh, we set up our own service, to be completely honest. We actually have a number of members of our own uh, who are fluent in those languages. So obviously it makes sense for us to offer that to people. Uh, so that's something, again, is in our in our world. When people join our, our whole thing, they can avail of that. Uh, but essentially, yeah, translated.net, pretty good company. Uh, there's a number of other e-commerce businesses or e-commerce translation firms. A lot of those firms though they typically want to work with much bigger businesses maybe they have you know 100 200 300 SKUs or something like that they want to translate uh, which isn't what we're like you know typically our sellers have maybe 5 10 SKUs maybe less even which is still cool it's still worth putting into the other countries so yeah I would just start with somewhere like translated.net or if you work with us our translator app you know you can you can utilize and connect with a translator that'd be my two recommendations gotcha and, the, and by the way, yeah, sorry to cut you off there, but the, the great thing just to mention is that Amazon themselves take care of all of the customer support in those languages. So the only question you would ever get from a customer would be, uh, you know, is this going to fit my TV or something if you're selling a TV accessory? But the thing about that is Amazon actually allow you to use Google Translate to translate those and respond because they don't they don't really expect you to have a full team of translators uh, customer support agents because that's a service they offer so it's only if it's a specific question the answer okay so amazon does a frontline support in all those international markets for you right got it yeah it's beautiful yeah it's, it's that actually sounds pretty good i mean and that probably gets rid of your top like 80 percent of questions right there and that just that basic like oh yeah yeah um what is we the, all know the number one question is where is my item, right? Where, Everyone yeah. knows that. Like, where's, yeah. where's my item? Where's, where's my tracking number? Um, how, yes. Do, do you have any in stock? Like, there's just these same questions. You're like, yeah. really? You can't, like, <laughs> it's 2019. Um, what are the, some common questions that uh, members, or common roadblocks um, that members kind of run into when they start doing this? Yeah, I think it's the same for any business uh, at all. So this is applicable to anyone. It just usually comes down to a number of mindsets and beliefs that people don't have installed in them because at the end of the day, they've never needed to have them installed, right? So they, they've never needed those beliefs because they've maybe worked in a job or whatever. And the number one thing we see is that, you know, people have got to make this shift from being a consumer all their lives to focusing on being a producer. So a producer is somebody who creates businesses, makes sales, offers products, doesn't always buy products, things of that nature. That's the big mental shift, I would say, number one. Another big mental shift as well is, you know, uh, understanding that in order to create a business, 
you've got to invest in creating assets. So a, a product is an asset, obviously, that you can sell over and over again and make money every time you make a sale. So your focus has got to be on asset creation, purchasing assets. Whereas for all our lives, most people, they've bought fuel for their car, food, clothes, you know, all those kinds of things. So we train ourselves for many years to be like, well, whenever I spend money, that's what I'm doing. I don't see anything back. I, I, it's gone. It's never coming back. So, so that's my belief system. So when you start any business, be it a drop shipping install business, be it an Amazon private label business, your belief is what? When I put this money down for these products, it's never coming back. And it's only because you've never seen that when you put money down and it multiplies, that's where the difference is. So I think that's the second big thing. And the third big thing that I often see is just people need to have more of a long-term outlook. You know, I think unfortunately with the internet, people standing in front of Lamborghinis and promising all this money is like a big issue, you know, because some people expect to have a business that's doing $100,000 revenue and making 20, 30 grand a month in their pocket in like 30 days. And as we all know, that's just not realistic for people who've never had a business before. Like I could go and start a new business. I've got different assets at my disposal and I could probably get my business to 10, 20 K profit a month pretty quickly. But I'm, I'm in business a long time. I've got a lot of assets that I can utilize to make that happen. So if you're starting from scratch, like you just got to be honest and say, it's going to take a little bit of time. I've got to, I've got to buy assets. Come back to number two. Number one, I got to continually focus on raising capital, investing in products, building assets. And they're the three keys, but that's, they're just three things we've never been taught our entire lives. Yeah. I like those. So shift from consumer to producer, asset creation, long-term outlook, kind of the three. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love kind of the, the mental um, game of entrepreneurship, right? Because there really is a shift. Um, when you said from consumer to producer, what exactly, like, what is that? Sh how do you describe that shift from somebody who's used yeah. to buying to somebody who's used to creating? It's actually really painful, to be honest, like, because I remember whenever I started out, you know, I was in a situation where I thought to myself, I was making like, $1,600 a month or something, you know, it's the equivalent. And it was like, I had no real money. So my belief system was through years of, of mental conditioning. Well, the only way to get money to start a business is what? Well, it's to stop drinking coffee out. It's to stop eating out at the weekend. It's to cut away. But that's like, I realized then when I met Robert, my still my business partner to this day, he really showed me that, well, you got to stop focusing on cutting things and you just got to start focusing on increasing your income. And the way you increase your income is by being a producer. So for example, if you're in a job right now and you're getting paid a certain amount of money, like it's easy to be called, it's, it's called learned helplessness. In other words, like you get that same money every month. It's been fed to you. You're kind of doing the job. You're, you're, and that's it. Like, so your brain is completely shut down to all the opportunities that are around you. And again, I'm not a scientist, but I mean, there is that, there's an experiment. And it was like, they took a lot of monkeys they, out of the wild, put them into a controlled environment, fed them the same thing at the same time every day. And then actually they, after a few months of doing this, the monkey started to look at the place where the food was going to come in. And then what they did was they brought them out to the wild again, releasing to the wild. And most of the animals died within a short period of time because they had forgotten to just reach out and all the resources were out there. So for me, you know, going back and I was kind of like that, you know, I didn't understand. Like if I just learned some skills, I could go to businesses and trade those skills and do some work for them to raise some money straight away because 
being honest, the easiest way to raise capital is to offer a service. Uh, you know, if you have no capital whatsoever, if you have capital, that's a different story. You can use that and you can multiply that through investing in assets like we just talked about. So, so that shift really is just deciding that I'm going to commit to increasing my income. I'm going to commit to increasing my skills. And for, for the rest of my life, I'm going to look around me in the world and look for problems. I'm going to offer solutions at a profit to those problems. Cause it's, and that's how we do it in our companies. You know, we keep looking at what are the problems our customers have? How can we make those easier? And that's another level again, which is from, you know, the rich dad, poor dad stuff. You know, Kiyosaki talks about a lot of people say, and before that, it's like, well, how can I afford that? That's a big, and so even in the business world, it's like, well, how can we offer that? Not just like, oh, what, what, who can we outsource that to? It's like, well, how can we offer that? Because if we offer that, we can control it, we can make it better, and we create another asset in our business. So they would be some of the things I would say are food for thought for people. Yeah, and the whole thing with asset creation, it's surprising um, how many, like the assets you're creating are surprising what they actually in all the different places, right? Um, easy example, like marketing assets. Um, the first time you go to launch an advertising campaign, marketing campaign, just doing the basics of oh, writing copy, let's get some images. You don't even know which images convert well. So you just kind of randomly find three or four of them and put them on Facebook or whatever. But over time you start building these marketing assets of saying, this text we know performs really well. This image performs really well. Here's some landing pages. We've tried 10 of them. Here are our top three. And you start having these assets and then when you go to say, okay, let's spin up a new marketing campaign, you're not just sitting down, you know, scratching your head saying, you know, where do we start? You're saying, let's look in the marketing asset, you know, Dropbox folder. There's a list of 50 things that performed well before. Let's just pick, you know, some combination, put them together. And then we have, a, you have this like starting platform and you can get it going in, you know, minutes or hours versus like days or weeks. So having those assets allows you to like, just really. Like those are like the building blocks um, that you kind of grow from and you yeah. don't know when you're That's, going into it. Yeah. And it's so interesting. There's a computer game I love to play. Uh, you know, I still like it even now. It's called Championship Manager. Super boring for most people. It's like a soccer management game, right? But the cool thing, the lesson that's actually interesting about that game is that like I got it to the point where I know I can pick any club in any division and I literally know the exact players to buy exact formations to play in everything i just know everything i need to know and i know uh, without doubt that over a few seasons i'm going to get that club promoted right so again coming back to what you just said it's the same thing like it's like when you have marketing assets well whenever you're going to launch a new campaign maybe all you're doing is you're actually launching that same proven marketing asset to just a new audience you're not even creating new creative anymore because it's an asset now as you just said and again an amazon product it's the same idea it worked in the u.s it's a it's a relatively global product. It's not like a U.S. flag or something. So yeah, let's put that into the other markets now. Let's put it, let's get new audiences in front of this, and let's see how we can multiply the value of that, that asset now and and sell out of our inventory quicker and and create uh, get more profits back into the business faster. And again, that creates that entire flywheel effect that you know a lot of the biggest companies in the world like Amazon have brought into their businesses. There's so many products to sell and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally yeah. love the topic of kind of the, the mental stuff. I think so many people, um, so many yeah. people are just starting off. It definitely, it's this um, kind of ongoing process that you never, like you've never like figured out, I've done it. Um, but you realize it's like going to the gym. It's like something you just need to 
get better at and improve and keep kind of leveling up that kind of mental game. Um, yeah. The patience. Well, it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's everything. You know, again, I, I, I spent a lot of my, you know, early twenties, I'm 32 now almost. And, you know, I spent a lot, most of my twenties, you know, unlearning pretty much everything that I had learned up until that point in my life. And again, I don't blame anybody because again, that's another big thing you, you got to start understanding is the number one thing is, you got to take full responsibility for everything. And that can be painful for a lot of people too, because I certainly didn't use to take full responsibility for my life. I blame people, all of that. But you know, one of the best books I read, which I'll happily recommend here, is The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. It's a great book. Um, there's 63 or 64 principles of success in it. Uh, there's another one, A Hero. It's just a shortened version called How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. And it has 25 of the top success principles in that book. And it's all this kind of stuff, you know. And, and I I really started to um, embody those even when I was in my job and trying to figure out this entrepreneur stuff. The big mistake I made that I would love to share with everybody now is I basically kept listening to the same things over and over again. So I was listening to positive things a lot. But the problem was I wasn't increasing my skills. I wasn't learning uh, how money flows, how money works. I, I didn't know any of that. I was just like, well, if I keep on thinking about 10 grand a month, I'm going to somehow make it come into existence, which is, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, it doesn't, how, how would that work, right? So I think the biggest lesson I'd love to pass on to, to anybody listening is like, don't just listen to positive things. Positive things are great. You you need them to actually brainwash yourself to become more positive. But, but the second piece is then, Go and find, for your first business anyway, go and find a process that somebody else has, has tested, has done to the letter and has is just like, look, I'm going to teach you how to do this. And, and, and again, people teach things for all kinds of different reasons. A lot of people say to us, is it just money? Definitely not. You know, there's much easier ways to make money. Uh, but for, for us, honestly, it's like uh, we want to pass on the lessons that I learned. Robert taught me. But secondly, you know, as we always say, our slightly evil motivation is we create long-term partners in our business. That's a side note, though. Uh, coming back to my point here, it's like for you starting out in business, finding someone who's already done something, they're happy to teach it to you. All you got to do is execute on that. That is exactly what you want to do for your first business. And even if you only make $100 a month in profit, it doesn't matter. You're learning something now that you can build upon. Whereas what I did was I was the completely wrong way. Up until I met Robert, I wasn't learning a specific business. I was simply just been like, should I start the next Facebook? Or how do I do that? How do I code things? I'd start going to learn how to code, which as you know, I'm sure <laughs> that's a long, that's a long road. Long road. Yeah. I, I didn't have the patience for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And again, so you, you don't need to do that, you know, but anyway, there are just some things I, I think are really important from the mental side. Yeah. My little shortcut I took with that, um, it's actually kind of interesting, um, to note in another alternative actually that, um, same thing kind of wanted to build a business. Um, I was doing some consulting at the time and then had kind of threw off a little extra cash. Um, and my whole, um, thing to jumpstart that is I actually purchased a small site that was already in operation so that that way I kind of just basically got the keys to like, look into the operations of understanding. Oh, here's how you fulfill products. Here's how you ship. Here's how you do X. So everything was already kind of just laid out. And all I had to do was just follow that process. So I didn't need to like invent anything or, you know, that came later on going, okay, now what happens if we try this changes one thing, but like day one, it's just take the site and copy exactly. It's like whatever that person was doing, copy yeah. it and just, yeah, that's it. Yeah. 
And, and they were able to sell that for a reason, you know? They were making money, they were making a profit, so they were able to sell that to you because they created what? They created an asset yeah. you were happy to purchase and then build upon. But that's it. Like, and you know, I'm sure you'd agree as well, Charles, like that that experience then, that sort of flipped switch in your brain where now all of a sudden you're no longer thinking as a like a entrepreneur. You're like, well, I have a business. Now I can start to think, how do I grow that business? Like you just mentioned, how can I improve the copy? Uh, what, if, what happens if I change the button color on the checkout page? What happens if I send uh, an email if somebody doesn't buy, you know, they bounce? All of that. I think that's huge. Yeah. Well, and like you said, too, it's a lot easier to take something that's working and try yeah. to make it work better than to kind of wander around the dark and just hope you find like the, you know, the secret combination of switches that make it work. But if you have it already kind of set up, you just know, all right, let's change one thing at a time and just see what happens and then measure, test and kind of grow from there. Um, so I'd highly, anything you do to just kind of find something that's working and just copy it basically. I mean, and either that's training that kind of offers you that purchasing a business, purchasing purchasing something that's already able to produce some income proven yeah proven yeah. model um definitely gets you forward so i love that all right i think um super helpful if folks want to kind of learn more about you kind of um see what you guys are working on for training what can they do that yeah very simple just go to marketplace superheroes.com and then when you're spelling here heroes h-e-r-o-e-s.com marketplace superheroes.com just tons of free training on the site. Uh, we're actually changing the site soon, but it will still have a ton of free training there. Yeah, so just jump in, grab it, see what we're talking about, if it makes sense to you. Great. Uh, regardless, I hope people took value from something we, that I said or you said today, Charles, and like people can take that away and apply it in their life and get results. Because honestly, for me at this point in my life now, I get the most joy just from seeing people take something, they did it, and they got a result from it. Like I, I consult with people all the time and, you know, they, they, I don't charge them even sometimes, although I, that's, a, that's a little secret that I'll keep on this podcast. But yeah, no, just from time to time I do it because I just want to see. If you want, reach out to Stephen. Maybe he won't charge Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, like honestly, I mean, yeah, grab the free training and we'd love to love to help you if we can. Awesome. All right. I will definitely turn the show notes. It, uh, it was great chatting. Thanks for coming on. Hey, you too, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for your time. Thank you.